This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. An Israeli importer was looking for orange juice from Florida under Ashgacha of Badatz Mahadran from Erzstroll. <coughs> they sent me down to check out some orange juice plants. I checked out a number of them and every one of them basically had certain serious issues. They wanted it basically to be also kosher Pesach. And finally, after a few companies, uh, the distributor asked the head of Adat Mahadran, Rabbi Rubin, that he wants to go out with the next inspection to see what the problems are. So Rabbi Rubin says usually we don't allow uh, for uh, distributors, etc., to go along with our mashgichem, but because it happened that he was you, your product was rejected a number of times, I'll let you go this time. And uh, I met him at the airport. Uh, we had somebody from the company that came to pick us up. Went down to the orange juice plant in Florida. Started going through uh, the production, etc., etc. Then I said I want to go to the freezer, and in the freezer. I saw he has a lot of different flavors <coughs> from China, from other areas. I took out my mini uh, tape recorder and I started recording uh, what I see there with all these flavors because writing it in a cold freeze is a little bit uh, rough. So I was reco- recording everything. So the manager calls me out and he says, excuse me, but um, these are not for this company. We own a couple of different uh, juice companies, but we store everything in this freezer. We close down all the other freezers, and this is the only freezer. So basically, all these flavors are for other products that we make in other companies. I said, fine, I have to put that in the report. I'll make note of it, of what you're telling me, and we'll put it in the report. And after we finish over here, he says, okay, now we have another orange juice company uh, about a half hour from here. So we went down to that other company. Came there, I said, I would like to go first to the freezer. So the manager says, well, you know, I'm not really sure where it is, and I'm waiting. Somebody's supposed to come over here to show us and take us to the freezer. He's not here yet, so we'll go through the other things also. So I said, weren't you the manager here at this plant about five, six years ago? He says, yes, but I don't have any more access to the keys. Okay, so we went through the plant, whatever it was. It took and uh, an hour and a half or so, two hours, and then they said, okay, the freezer is available now for me to check. I said, I don't want to bother with it. Let's just go back to the airport. So the manager says, what's the problem? It wasn't, it wasn't available, and that's it. So I said, yeah, we'll manage like this. So the Israeli says, Kovadarav, you know, it's the, it wasn't available now. You know, don't uh, be a stickler on things. I say, okay, let's see it. It was a very, very large freezer. It must have been about uh, 75 to 100 feet long by about 50 feet wide. Gigantic freezer. Doors open, we take a look, and you can't even find a cigarette butt on the floor. Everything was clean, spotless, beautiful clean. Okay, so he says, you see, we store everything in that other freezer, that's why you don't have anything over here. And as we're leaving to the car and he's ready to drive us to the airport, I talked to myself a little bit loud. I said, I just don't understand it. I don't get it. And the manager says, what seems to be the problem, Rabbi? I said, I don't know. I'm, I just don't get it. I, I don't understand it. He said, what seems to be the problem? I say, very simple. 
this gigantic freezer where you don't keep any storage over here and everything is stored in the other place yet the freezer is still on you're wasting that much energy in a thing that's closed how interesting okay from there we basically went because they transport from one company to the other one uh, with uh, truck tankers not with trains but with truck tankers so I decided to stop off by where they do the washing of the trucks in a commercial wash place and I saw that the hoses that they use basically they do also at the same time we were there they did in boiling hot water non-kosher hoses together with the kosher hoses etc etc so the trucking was also a problem so the trucking company asked me if I could design for them a system where they could have a regular kosher wash so I said they give me your business card I'll send you in uh, some tips and then I'll hook you up with uh, one of the kosher certifiers to, to basically um, uh, be able to do kosher productions one of the things which I realized by a number of these uh, tank washing places is that they use the um, for the first rinse of the truck which is called the pre-rinse they used recirculated water which they used from a previous truck it's just basically to wash out whatever is left over there so and they're doing most of these places all these places are really doing kosher or non-kosher that pre-wash even if you have a kosher dedicated truck and they're using the pre-wash hot water that they washed out a different truck based which was not kosher now this so-called kosher dedicated truck became a non-kosher truck so I explained that to the OU and basically they started giving Ashgachas on wash stations truck washing stations and they eliminated the section of doing the pre-wash with recirculated water <coughs> I had a job to do in the Hilton uh, large wedding with some uh, with some 15 to 1800 people I really didn't have a schmuck to do it in the first place uh, the oven, the racks they used was one of these revolving racks they used in the oven so I told the boss that really you know those racks can't be kosher they need a, a living and uh, I can't do a living on these things over here and you can't bring torches into New York etc I'm not really interested in doing it so he told me find out how much it costs for new racks uh, and uh, we'll find out how many racks of those the caterer needs and I'll buy new racks and that's what he did okay but you come there you have basically 180 waiters union waiters I knew you know with a union waiter you can't you know tell him what to do he does whatever he wants etc which is a very big problem because they'll take uh, tongs they'll take spoons they take other things that they're not supposed to be taking and it's very hard to reason with them so what I did was I went over to the captain who runs the show for the union and I told him the issue that I have and I gave him a couple hundred bucks and I told him I want to have that the first waiter that challenges me I want you to send them home you'll pay him his regular salary afterwards but send them home let them know that I am the boss here tonight and whatever I say goes and whoever doesn't listen basically is out the door he says fine I'll do it it really didn't even take five minutes I challenged one waiter on something that he was doing and he basically told me to fly a kite I told him that he should leave he says you can't tell me I'm a union I say call over the captain and the captain says the rabbi runs the show tonight and that's it and you're out the door it was interesting in the same Hilton in New York where I discovered another very interesting thing that the they buy their steam from the city the city uses also 
um, return condensate to make their steam. So the condensate really is sometimes very often is non-kosher, and they use no, they they use the condensate that they buy from New York City before they dump it as condensate. They preheat the hot water in the hotel, the sink hot water. So now what happens is that this sink hot water really from the steam coming from the kitchens is always non-kosher. So any hot water over there, you can't fill up pots, you can't use it for cooking, you can't use it for drinking, can't use it to make coffee, etc., etc. Then we found another interesting thing is that uh, ice machines, usually we knew, does not have a problem with copepods those little insects in the water in New York City because by ice machines there's always a filter over there to take it out but what I noticed by the by the Hilton was that the the filter was bypassed evidently it wasn't it wasn't cleaned and they didn't change it so what they did was they they opened up the bypass in the meantime until they changed it but at that time we had no uh, ice that we could use because of the copepod issue and we had to go out and buy ice at that time then we had a thing that I told um, the bartender I can't use any even kosher whiskeys I can't use any open bottles everything has to be sealed bottles he says why uh, he says we never spill back from one bottle to another one I said it has nothing to do with it but that is my policy you'll give me the closed bottles I put on my signature on it and I'll come down to the bars, me and the other rabbis that I hear will check by the bar constantly if it has my signature on it. And lo and behold, it didn't go by five minutes. I open up the room where they store all the whiskey in the bar, and a bartender standing there spilling over from one bottle to another one. I don't know if it was the same kind or it was. It didn't make a difference. But what I did was I stopped them, and I called over the, the main bartender that told me that they never ever spill it in and I told him here it is this is what happened and this one will admit to you this is what happened and that's what we had by the Kharshiva Hilton Hotel <coughs> the Bukharan rabbis and queens <coughs> decided a number of years ago they wanted to have their own Hashgacha they had it was places it was this and that <coughs> I didn't feel too comfortable they called me down because I had a Shaykhist with a lot of other Sephardim and Queens, the Tov organization, etc. They wanted me to see. So I said, okay, let's go visit some other places. I think the first place we will visit was somebody, Mikhail, Mikhail, I, I remember that name, uh, restaurant. They had two, two restaurants, at least two restaurants. And I, I tell them I want to go down to the storeroom. That's the first place I want to go. Go to the storeroom. And I see they have a pallet of uh, breading that they use uh, for for schnitzel, for meat, and for chicken, etc., etc. I re- read the ingredients, and I asked this, this rabbi that came with me, I say, you want to read the ingredients? He reads the ingredients. I say, you see any problem? He says, no. I say, you read English? He says, yeah. You understand what I says? Yeah. I said, could you tell me what way is, W-H-E-Y? He says, yeah, that's one of the words I don't understand, but, it, you know, it doesn't sound like anything wrong. It's not something that's not kosher. I say, yeah, but you have to realize that way is dairy, it's milchik. If it's milchik and they're using it to coat your your chicken and your meat, you have over here basabacholov and you have to kasha all your kalim. Oh, he didn't realize that. Okay, then we found some other kind of issues there. We found that they had masago, which is um which is caviar, 
they had, you know, nice small bottles by them in the refrigerator of kosher masago. But then, as I went into his freezer, I saw boxes of caviar masago with no hashgach at all. So what they were doing is, they were taking out one or two bottles of masago non-kosher, putting it over into the kosher bottles, and that's the way they were using it. Okay. Then, as we left that restaurant, I uh, said I want to go to the second Mikhail restaurant. So the rabbi says, yeah, but we have all the ones that are close. I say, no, I want to go to that one. Okay, so we go down that one, whatever, it was a 15-20 minute ride. We come there, and I realized right away that this restaurant spoke to that one. And I uh, tell them, I want to go to the storeroom. Okay, I go down to the storeroom, and I'm looking around. I can't find the pallet of the breading. It's not there. I don't know if he told him, he didn't tell him this and that. So I go upstairs, I take a look at the menu, and I see on the menu he has, uh, basically, he would have to use this breading. So, but I figured that most probably the other one told him what we found over there, that he had the milktika breading for this. So, um, I tell the rabbi, okay, let's sit down by a table. I call over a waiter. I say, okay, I want to order this chicken, breaded chicken, and the, the other rabbi wants to order breaded uh, meat. So the rabbi says, uh, are you Meshiga? We're going to order in a restaurant like this? I say, just, just watch what happens. So the manager from the restaurant comes over. He says, okay, rabbi, you got me. Yeah, I was called by the other restaurant to put away the thing because it had dairy in it. You got me over here. I found some other problems over there. Then I found uh, some in the office by the ma- by the by the boss was it hung around over here. So I went into his office to make a telephone call, and I noticed he had the tray for gelatin that he had in his office that he held. But that that's what it is. So I can't tell you how the hashgach is now, what it is. But basically, uh, Bukharin is a, is a hard a hard bunch to deal with, basically. <coughs> I was doing fair to stroll for Badat Maharan. I was doing a, a mango a production <coughs> of uh, mango concentrate in uh, in Mexico. It was um, a four week production, <coughs> and they were getting mangoes coming from a hundred miles around them, a uh, hundred miles south, hundred miles north. So basically, the weather is completely different and other things get right before others. So as things came over here, bins, each bin had whatever it was, a thousand pounds of mangoes in it. They used to send the mangoes, some mangoes from each bin into the office. They had their laboratory, and they checked it if it's ripe enough for to be able to make juice. And it took time. They had to decide. They moved around. There was hundreds and hundreds, and trucks were coming. A whole day were coming with, um, with loads of, uh, of mango skids. And uh, the second day, I told the manager there, I'll tell you which, uh, which skids of mango are ripe enough for juicing enough to send it to the laboratory. He says, no, Rabbi, it's very complicated, and this is the way we do it. I say, you know what? Test me. I'm going to show you which ones are ripe. Take them into the laboratory, see if I'm wrong on any one of them. And then I'll show you on all the ones that you're taking in, I'll tell you if they're ripe or not. And, see what and I batted 100 on the thing. They couldn't get over it. They notified one of the vice presidents 
that came from they owned a number of companies. So one of the vice presidents comes down to the plant and he says, Rabbi, how do you know that accurately, which we spend a lot of money on having a laboratory to know what's ripe and what's not ripe, and you could basically, after being here the second day, you could tell us every bin which is ripe and which is not ripe. I say, you have to look at nature. Uh, Hashem created the world with a lot of very interesting nature things, and you just have to watch nature. I watch the bees like sweet nectar. When a mango is completely ripe, there's some of that sweet nectar is leaking out of it, and that's what the bees go to. So if I see by a bin a number of bees hanging out there, I know that one is ripe. If you take a bin that doesn't have too many bees, maybe just a few, uh, a handful of bees, that the bin is not ripe, and that's the way I know. And I happen to know this also, you know, when I I was growing aravas for many years, and uh, many times aphids which suck out the sap from the arava tree and they pile up aphids that multiply extremely extremely fast and they draw out the sap from the arava and uh, and they ruin the plant so every time that I saw bees hanging around I knew that the bees because the bees can't take out the sap from inside the plant but the aphids can and they take out more sap than they could consume so there's always extra sap laying around on the branches so they go in to take that extra sap to bees so if I see bees there I know that I have to spray now my plants with chemicals because of it being infested by aphids which will basically drain and, uh, and suck out the nutrients from the plant and the leaves turn yellow etc etc then there are a mixture of this plant basically calls me up and he asked Highness, why did I come down to the plant to do the Ashgacha? He did it last time for the same Badatz Mahadvin and uh, suddenly I come in, uh, I have no right, this and that, he said, I'll be there tomorrow. So I call up Badatz Mahadvin and I say, you know, how do I deal with this? I said, it's not my issue to deal with the rabbi, you should have dealt with him. He says, you'll, you'll do the best you could. So I went down to the supermarket that night and I looked around for products that's under this rabbi's Ashgacha and I found some pre-checked um, uh, lettuces under that gacha, and I looked in the bags, and I was able to identify um, insects in there. So I bought a few bags, took it with me, went down to the plant, and when the rabbi came and he started carrying on, I asked him, let me ask you, you give Ashgacha on these things, your emblem is on here? Takes a look, he says, yes. I said, let me show you insects over here, some are alive, some are not, but let me show you the insects. How are you giving Ashgacha on this? Uh, so he tells me that he'll be in the company in two weeks around and he'll institute the proper changes there. I said, I don't understand you. You have a telephone on the desk here. You know that this thing is Osir. It's, it's worse than Chazat Reif. And you're telling me that you'll be there in two weeks? And you're not picking up a telephone now to call up and tell them they should they can't make any productions with your bags on there with your ashgacha and they should stop making the production. I say you want to know why the Bdats Mahadran didn't have you do the production. I don't know how they had you do the production in the first place. But this over here with the Tailom and you have absolutely no problem with it, I am really shocked. <coughs> in the na- international business uh, of manufacturing companies, not only manufacturers, others also, the thing called ISO, 
<coughs> international standards organization, which basically is all over the world. It takes a long time for a company to become ISO certified. Uh, like a car manufacturer wouldn't buy a washer or a nut or a bolt from a company that's not ISO certified. Because what happened was they always had to send down people to check out the quality control and the methods they use. And it was very expensive for a company to send down. Then they want certain changes. They don't know if you're making those changes uh, always. So by every production that they need, they have to have people there in the company. So ISO was developed to have... Uh, the, the motto is, say what you do, do as you say, and document it. So every company, if you will go through that book, you'll know exactly what their standard is. Nobody deviates anything at all. And if basically, if there's complaints that come in that people found certain things or certain things are not done according to the specs they're supposed to do, basically, once a company loses their ISO certification, it's not like Ashgacha, that there's a couple of thousand of them, there's, there's more ISO certifiers than Ashgacha agencies. But once you lose your ISO, it's lost from everybody. Nobody else will give you. Besides, in China, they uh, they get they can get ISO basically if you pay the right price, you get it. But around the world, it's a very very tight organization. Everything is basically um, extremely extremely tight, and you can't play no games. And if there's a few complaints that came in, and when they come and do their inspections once every second year or so, you have to show them all the letters that came in with complaints from any consumer or any other company, whatever else it is, and if they find that you have a number of violations, it's very easy for you to use the ISO uh, certification. If you use the ISO certification, you might as well close up for business, because you'll never be able to make it without having your ISO certification. Uh, one of the biggest shipping uh, companies that, that have ships on the high seas that carry a lot of food is called the Stolt Shipping Company, which belongs to the Stolt family. When I was going for my ISO um, auditing uh, certification, I was in class together with one of the sons from Stolt. Uh, when we were almost finished, he asked me if I do kosher inspections on the ships. I said, at this time, I'm not doing kosher inspections on ships. He said, oh, we're very lucky. I say, why are you lucky? He says, when the other rabbis come on the ships, we know exactly what they're looking for. They have these same questions. What's your last three loads? What's this? You know, they really don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what to look or whatever else it is. If you'd be there, he says, we would have a lot of problems because you would figure out where to look and what to see and what to realize is a problem. And as long as you're not doing that, uh, we're, do we're doing pretty good. But basically, I've uh, so I I am an ISO um, certified auditor, which basically I've explained to a number of cash organizations why it's important they should have a number of people on their staff that should be ISO auditors, but they've never followed through. So at this time, basically, I'm the only one in Kashrus uh, that's a certified ISO auditor. Now, we'll take just one th one area. It's called in ISO, it was I think section 13, customer supplied product. What is customer supplied product? Is a customer will send everything over to a company, including the ingredients, including the packaging, everything from A to Z, in order to make for them a production. Whatever it'll take a day, two days, three days, four days. And as soon as it's done, they send down their trucks, they pick everything up, and everything else that's left, any ingredients that's left over, any packaging left over, etc., etc. And none of those things ever enter in the computer of the company that they bought packaging or they bought labels or they bought ingredients, nothing at all. 
So if the company happens to know that the mashgiach comes, whatever it is, once a month, once in two months, they very easily could schedule a production right after a mashgiach was there. They know that for the next four to six weeks they got a free run, and <coughs> they schedule such a production. The company goes and sends in everything from A to Z. That's called customer supply product. And they do the production, and as the Layada Mashikhla Kuma, the certain Mashgichim, they pride themselves that we go into the computer of the company and we know everything that happens, and we go, we understand computers, we can go in, you can go in from today till tomorrow to the, the company records and the computer, you'll never find that they did a non kosher production or unauthorized production, etc., etc., and it happens often enough. So when I used to do it, basically I did make changes. I put into the, the the section that every ingredient and every method and everything they get from the company has to meet with the Schedule A from the kosher certifier, and I eliminated that things. And then basically I also had that any time they did a customer supply product thing and the kosher certifier rabbi comes down, they have to show them exactly what was done, etc., etc., and a number of other changes were made, but basically, it's still going on today, these same issues and problems, and, uh, and very, very hard to be able to catch it, of oh, that's what's happening. I was down in Uruguay <coughs> by Rabbi uh, Rubens Chita, spent here uh, almost a week, <coughs> very interesting to see Chita, it was, uh, they didn't check more than 300 head a day, and uh, he took mostly younger animals, because the older ones, basically, the amount of the trapes was a little bit higher, and uh, beforehand, before the shechita, in the morning he had a mashgiach that was trained by, um, by a professional company, <coughs> being to able to identify the Zebu breed, because the Zebu breed, because of Chazaynish, he didn't want to use the Zebu. Others, basically, if it looks like the Zebu, they'll uh, sometimes not use it. But if it doesn't look like it, uh, with the hump and with the long neck and the long ears, etc., etc., they'll use it. But he was very mocked with not to use it. And uh, But it was very, very interesting. And I wrote a whole report of every, all the big milers that I saw by his uh, Shechita. And that report eventually was used by the uh, Baron and Rebbe <coughs> to set up his Shechita of, uh, of Monroe. There was a <coughs> chocolate company in, in Jersey City that uh, they needed for stroll, the OU needed uh, production made for Pesach uh, at that company. And the uh, Rav Amachshir was reluctant, he didn't want to let in regular OU people, he was afraid they're going to come away to company from him, etc., etc. But we decided that basically, <coughs> I should go down and do the production. I gave them in a list that they can't put anything into any of the equipment unless it's approved by me. Every single batch they do, everything has to be approved by me. Okay, as I went around checking the place, basically Rav Amachshir says that the chocolate, none of the equipment ever goes above 105 degrees. So it is nothing to be b- concerned <coughs> about bleas in the pipes because nothing goes above that thing. And as I'm going around, suddenly, you know, there's, there's miles and miles of piping over there. I stop at a certain point. I stop. So the Rav Machsha and the manager asked me, "Why are you stopping?" I said, "Just wait here a few minutes. Don't don't move. We are just come, come and stay where I am." 
A few minutes later, somebody comes over with a ladder and a torch and starts heating up the line in order to loosen the chocolate that got stuck. So I asked Rabbi Machshe over here in this area, did it go above 105? It sure did. It went a lot above because he's using a very big torch over here, a roofing torch, to do it. So the manager asked me, Rabbi, how do you know that somebody's going to come with a torch? I said, I'm very much uh, attuned to the sound of equipment. I could hear uh, the wherever the chocolate is heading to that it's on free spin. That means chocolate is not going into the equipment. If chocolate is not going in, it means there's got to be a block at someplace. And if I hear it over here, so it's got to be someplace in this area, I knew somebody's going to come with a torch to loosen it. Okay, and basically there was an ASIC with them opening up the thing. So I had to use basically <clears throat> white chocolate line. We we ran through a couple loads of... of um, cocoa butter etc the main thing that you're concerned over there by the chocolate is basically the the soy the lecithin the lecithin is made from soy which is kidneys and that's what you can't use <coughs> what I did was I um, suddenly noticed that in the middle of the production he notices that the the lecithin is standing right where we're doing the pace of production so he asked the manager why you put the lesson over here. He says that's what it says on the rabbi's list that that's where we should put it. So he asked me why you put it over here. I say if it's in any other place and the place is so big, I can't know if somebody's going to take a bucket of lesson and go around the back and go and somehow or other get into a line and spill it into my tank of chocolate. If it's over here, every single time that he takes lesson, I follow him to see where he's putting it and where he dumps it. So I have a very tight control of where the thing is happening. And lo and behold, I uh, realized that they went, even though they weren't supposed to, they used the deodorizer. Now, deodorizer, first of all, is almost impossible to kasha. It's what the deodorizer works is it takes out the, um, uh, the odor from chocolate and cocoa butter by injecting in it um, live steam. And the heat of that basically um, removes the the taste from the chocolate, the bad taste they want to get, and the nickel that it has in there. Uh, but usually, the odorizers work, you have to put in some citric acid. There was a problem with some citric acid in some companies that it was uh, made from either kidneys or even comets. <coughs> so I asked the company, I want to know <coughs> where they store the citric acid. I want to see it. Uh, sure, they give me a hard time. I say, no, I want to see. I say, don't take it from where it is. I want to see where they store the citric acid. I figured I'm going to see how old it is. And it seems that one of the managers decided that he wants to figure out what my concern is. He did a search on the web, and he saw that it was at a certain date. So he told me that that citric acid is very, very old citric acid. It's before that problem came up. <coughs> I was insisting I want to see where it is. It took them a good two to three hours until they took me to the warehouse and they told me they really only use about a quart of citric acid a week for the deodorizer. They did nothing else they use it for. So I, uh, to myself, I was wondering, first of all, I bent down to feel the temperature of the bag and the temperature of the bags next, next to it and I realized that they just moved the citric acid to this place and this was right in the beginning of the um, of the warehouse 
where if you're only using a quarter a week and each bag basically would have enough for basically for two to three months, you put this always on the end someplace in the back. Well, probably they didn't want me to see that they had other citric acid that came more recently and may have been a problem of comets or uh, kidneys. So when I uh, so I notified OU and I told them they shouldn't notify the company until I leave from here and I get home. This was on Friday. Then they notify the company that basically I can the order is basically rejected for Pesach. <coughs> so they made a whole big ASIC about it and they said assume the OU for eighty thousand dollars <coughs> and OU asked me what are you gonna do about it? I said, I'll take the responsibility on myself. Because basically they couldn't have had the citric acid from before because what I did was I was familiar with boilers. I took down the serial number from the boiler which is used for the deodorizer. There is nothing else they use citric acid for. And the date of manufacture of the boiler was way, way past of the date they told me they got the citric acid. But there was no reason that they would have had citric acid in the company before they used this deodorizer. And I have the date when the deodorizer and the boiler were manufactured. So I had no problem defending this kind of case in court. So they called me up if I'm going to come down Monday to continue the production. I said, until you don't send out a letter to the OU that you're not going to sue them. I say, me, you could sue from today to tomorrow. It doesn't bother me because I could defend myself. But I want a letter to the OU. You're not going to sue them. And they're not liable for anything. And then I'll continue the production. I'll continue the production. And then we, uh, when I came down there Monday, I realized that we had a different problem that one of the tanks, the seal, was broken, and the question was, did they use any less than it or not? Because you have to you have to use cocoa butter, but cocoa butter is more expensive, and you have to use approximately four, 50 times more cocoa butter than less than in order to get your viscosity of the cocoa down to the right viscosity. So I did a calculation about how much cocoa butter I feel they would have to add if they went and added less than, and I felt comfortable that they didn't add anything to it, and the OU accepted my calculation, and were able to finish over there the production. I designed a magnetic type of switch <coughs> that, even according to the Chazayinish, <coughs> you could use it on Shabbos and Yom Tov <coughs> without an issue of Boina, and you could that way open and close an alarm of <coughs> Arun Kodesh on Shabbos and Yom Tov. So, the one that was running uh, what's called Masifta de Rekia. Masifta de Rekia was on shortwave radio. They had a shear once or twice a week. So they asked me that because um, the um, rabbi of the Star K is going to be on talking about alarms on Shabbos, he'd appreciate if I could get on also because I have a good understanding of electric and alarms and uh, these type of things, and he wants me to have my input. So after he explained that the way they should open up an alarm on Shabbos for the shul and the this is kolach So I got on and I said that I designed a magnetic switch, which basically you're reversing your polarity, the north and south, etc., which is no problem on Shabbos and Yontif. And that way, the switch, as you're moving in another magnet in place that to replace the first one, you could open up the door and the alarm is not going to get triggered and there's no mice that you did, nothing got built, there was no problem with Chazenish. A lot of people were asking questions about it, and evidently I didn't explain it good. <coughs> and then afterwards, the 
person that I was standing that I was talking on had a better way of explaining it and he explained it to everybody and they said oh it's a very simple solution we never realized it and basically they don't think that even the rabbi from the star K really understood it but when he got on the rabbi from the star K the rabbinic administrator said look the chazanish is only a das yachid so just use the kalachiyad and don't forget about this kind of switch which basically was designed specially for this I showed it to Shmuel Kamenetsky who has a, a stickle of knowledge in electric and he was a little bit surprised he tried putting the magnet on this side and on that side and he saw that the, the thing doesn't move you could put the magnet on either side and the switch does not move and he held it is absolute no problem to use the Shabbos and Yontem even according to Kazanish <coughs> as a young boy I always loved tools and um, uh, there was advertised from Shoppers Paradise in Spring Valley we lived in Muncie was advertised tools very very cheap I asked my mother when I go to Yeshiva to New York if she could go and pick up these tools so she went down to whatever was Sunday morning and they said they didn't take out the tools yet they'll have it uh, in the next day or so <clears throat> she went down there again on Tuesday or Wednesday and they said they sold them all out and the sale was supposed to go till uh, Shabbos so I felt that they were really taking advantage, and uh, which I didn't go for that. So the next uh, Friday, I went down to the Attorney General's office in Manhattan. I was learning in Brooklyn. I went down Friday. <clears throat> and I'm staying in line with everybody else, with a copy of the ad and everything else, all the information I needed, and where my mother went down. And um, an older person comes over that was working there in the office. He says, uh, excuse me, are you Yeshiva Bacher? I said, yes, I am. He says, Yeshiva Bachel, come first. Come into my office. I go into his office. I had no idea who he is or anything. And he says, tell me the story of what happened. I showed him the, the advertisement. And I told him it's supposed to be till Shabbos. And my mother went back there on Wednesday. I had all the information down. And he says, you do very, very good. Uh, your homework and your research, everything is very good. Let me call in one of my people. And calls in one of his people, shows him what this is. Guy says, okay, I'll send him out form, this and that. So he says, no, 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 you pick up a telephone and you call up the company eh, in Spring Valley and let's get this, uh, Yeshiva Bacher doesn't have to come in and keep going with letters and back and forth. We've got to finish this today. And they called and said, who's responsible for advertisements? They said, we really don't have anybody that's per se responsible for advertisements. He says, according to New York State law, this is the Attorney General's office, you can't advertise anymore according to this, 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 and law in court in which law it is. One second, he says, it always works. They bring over somebody. He says, this was the story that happened. We're going to send over this young fellow to you on Saturday night at approximately this and this time. You make sure you have all these tools there and you give it to him at the sale price. They said, but we sold everything out. He says, so you'll go and buy it someplace else. Otherwise, we're going to fine you for false advertisement. And uh, basically, as I'm leaving the office, I went over to one of the people there. I said, who's that old man that took me into his office? They said, you don't know who that is? I said, no. They said, that's Attorney General Lefkowitz himself. He never deals with anybody. We're surprised that he called you in office. We thought that maybe he knows you from someplace with your family or something like it. But I went there much Chavez, and basically uh, <coughs> they had some people from the executive people were watching to see who this kid is that's giving them all this trouble. They gave me all the tools I wanted, and... Shalom al Yisrael, I uh, had what I wanted, got it for the right price, etc. <coughs> One of the times when I went to Shalom Zalman Obach by breakfast, <coughs> I noticed uh, after he finished eating, he went to the closet to get his hat to bench. 
his jacket. I mean, he was wearing really some sort of halatal, but his hat, he wouldn't bench without the hat. And I asked him, he says, yeah, you can't bench without a hat, you can't dive him without a hat, and if you're someplace, and you see a minion there for the whatever it is for Mincha, and you forgot your hat, whatever else it is, it's better to daven later, be Yechidus, with a hat, than daven with a minion, without a hat. And then we were talking also about the Bishl Yisrael, etc. He says, yeah, there's like the, the one in America, one of the Mechana Rabbonim, um, that made a light bulb, and he wants to call Bishl Yisrael, and basically it's, it's a big kilkel, a big michshel, it basically causes, because of that, these kind of a terum basically causes Nesuri uh, Teruvus, intermarriage, etc., etc., and chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, to rely on those things. I saw Sweet and Low has a thing called cream of tartar. It could also be called tartaric acid, which is <coughs> made from wine or grape juice. So I called up the, the company and I asked them which brand wine they use. They said that the OU allows them to use any any wine at all. There is no criteria. So I called up the Rob that handles the things for the OU and I asked them how could they be using the cream of tartar with any wine. It's Yain Stam, Yain Esach, whatever you want to call it. So he says no, he says in uh, cream of tartar and tartaric acid in halacha is called Weinstein and Weinstein there was no gazelas chazal on Weinstein and also the residue from the grapes and everything there is no yain nesach or yain stam on that so maybe they could use it so I said they used to make it from the Weinstein which is the scrapings of the barrel but now the volume they need they can't make from scraping the barrel so what they do is they centrifuge it they take grape juice, they put it through a centrifuge which separates the things into different uh, components and then one of those components they take and they dry it out he says yes yeah, so it's dried so what's the problem I say by, by yayin even afrin is also, it doesn't make a difference if you dried it but Weinstein is different because there was never Xeris Chazal on it he says no, he says they should ask me he says they're using Weinstein, I say they don't use Weinstein they use the, the, um, the regular grape juice and okay so I wasn't getting any place with them, so I called up the halal certifier. I said, how do you allow your people to use um, sweet and low, which has in it cream of tartar, which is made from wine? I sent them an email. It didn't take 15 minutes. I get a response from the chemist from, uh, from the halal certification. It's interesting. Uh, in general, cash organizations do not have chemists on board to go through the things. They have people uh, wannabes but not not chemists uh, food chemists uh, this halal one I don't know how many things they certify but they had a chemist on board and he writes back to me that in in uh, by the Muslims they can't use fermented wine but this is made sent of you from grape juice which is non-fermented so they don't have a problem and that's why they allowed them to use the sweet and low also very interesting that they knew the answer right away and by the organization they were unaware of the answer when I was a young boy, I was under five. Um, I, my parents sent me to my first day of, uh, of yeshiva. And because I was younger than the rest of the class, my father gave me from his store, so I had a juvenile furniture store, he gave me a nice big airplane that I should use at recess and lunch to be able to play with. I took it out by recess, the first recess to play with it, and somebody took it away from me. 
So I went to the Rebbe, and I told him I didn't fight with him, and I told the Rebbe I didn't fight with the boy, but he took it away from me. So the Rebbe went, took the airplane, put it away in his locked closet, and he says, I'm not giving it back. I say, why not giving it back? He says on the end of the year, I say, I didn't fight with it. There's no reason to be punished. You know, not, so he says, I'm taking it away, and at the end of the year, you'll get it. So by lunchtime, I went to the principal, and I told him, I don't understand basically the yashness of this kind of thing of what's going on why can't I have back my airplane so he says a rabbi is always right so I said so could you tell the rabbi that end of the day today he should give it back to me he said didn't you hear the rabbi said he's going to give it back to you at the end of the term I said yeah today is the end of the term because I'm not coming back tomorrow and he gave it back to me and uh, when I came home my parents asked me what happened and I told them they said for one thing like that you don't go back I said a rabbi that's not straight and a principal that's not straight that's not where I go to Cheder sorry and I stayed basically I played hooky for three days until my parents realized that I'm very firm about it and they decided to send me to a different yeshiva because to this one and I remember my father told my mother you know that you know with this kind of thing over here mit Leiden for them but what should I do that's the way I was everything got to go a straight line <coughs> <coughs> uh, I get a call I think it was one year Chalamoid Sukkos <coughs> from the OK that is a syrup company in New Jersey that wants to go under the OK could I go down and check it up they make all different kinds of syrups I went down <coughs> and uh, the first place I decided to go is in the um, warehouse and I see in the warehouse they have a lot of empty canisters metal canisters of Coca-Cola, 7-Up, and a lot of other ones. So I asked the owner, are you an authorized manufacturer for Coca-Cola, 7-Up, and the other ones? He says, no, I'm not. I say, so why do you have these canisters here? He says, I put my own flavors in them, and I supply restaurants, uh, hotels, etc., because my um, syrups are much cheaper than the major brands, and it tastes the same as the major brands. I said, very interesting. I said, you're not concerned about it? He says, oh, I was sued by Coca-Cola. It took them five years of following me to get all the, co- the where I'm delivering everything to. And basically, I lost in court. The judge fined me $500,000, payable over 20 years. So I say, so why do you still have the canisters? He says, Rabbi... For $25,000 a year, which is costing me, I'm making a lot more money than that. They're not going to go after me again. I'm paying that fine over 20 years, and I'm going to keep on making these, these things. I was a little concerned, that's the thing. I've gone through everything in his, uh, in his company, and I told him I need copies of all your raw ingredients that it has a, a proper kosher certification. And he was able to provide to me something like about 30, 35% at most. So I asked him, were you ever coach certified before? He says, yes, I was coach certified by a Baltimore-based coach certifier. But they had trouble with one of my um, customers that didn't pay them their fee. So they told me that they don't want me to supply that customer anymore, which I don't think that it was right of them to tell me 
anything about my customers as long as I'm getting paid. If they're not getting paid because of some work they did for him, that's their problem. But that's what they want to have. And they said if I supply that customer, they're going to remove the kosher certification. And I kept on supplying the customer. They removed the certification. So now, basically, I don't have a certification. That's what I'm looking now to the okay for a new certifier. I said, but I have to have kosher certificates for everything. He said, I don't have. I could get you maybe another few, but I'm not going to be able to get you for everything. I said, how did the other one give you certification? He said, I just gave him a batch of papers. They took it. I never heard from them, and they gave me kosher certification. If they reviewed it or not, I have no idea. But they, they didn't have any more papers that I'm giving you. I said, I can't at this time. I'll, I'll give you some time, and you, but you have to be able to produce to me for every single ingredient. Otherwise, you can't use those ingredients. Then as I'm leaving, the, a, a food chemist comes over to me and he says, who's going to be the one in charge of this company of the kosher production? Is it going to be you or somebody else? I say, most likely it'll be me. I live in Jersey and most probably I'll be handling this account. He says, oh, that's a problem. I say, what's the problem? He says, I'm one of the chemists that developed the flavor for Dr. Pepper. And there is something in there that I know that you're not going to approve of. And uh, over there, what we do is we know how to work with the rabbis that uh, we know how to go around it. But watching you today, being here today, it's not going to work with you. So if you're going to be the rabbi, that means that this place is not going to, because that's one of the things they asked me is to develop for them a Dr. Pepper. I can't make one that should taste very close to the real Dr. Pepper. And I'm sorry, so it went by basically another couple of weeks. The guy couldn't produce um, the rest of the documents. He called up the OK if they could send a different rabbi. They said, no, that this is the rabbi is right. You have to produce all the documents. So they um, then I never heard from them, so I called him up and I asked him what happened. So he says he saw he's not getting any place. He can't produce kosher certificates for all his ingredients. So he went back to the Baltimore-based uh, kosher certifier and he paid them a fine, and he's back with them, and they never asked him for any more documents or anything else like it, and that's what he's doing. Years ago, there was a chesidish young man <coughs> by the name of Labin that vanished, and they didn't know, uh, he, he did uh, take loans and others, he did business with, uh, with a little bit with the underworld, <coughs> and they had no idea what happened, they were looking for him up and down. I was heading to Edstrahl then, so somebody from the family called me up, and they said, <coughs> we're looking ready for weeks for the Slabin. There's a certain Makubal in Beit Shan. If you could do us a toiver, go to that Makubal and see if he could tell you something about this one. They gave me, they gave me his name, his mother's name. Every, all the information I needed, they gave me. I went down to Beit Shan. I spoke to him. So he heard what it is. And he says, for that you have to come back to me. <coughs> on Thursday, because that's when there's Kriya Torah, and I'll try to do what I could do. Came back to him on Thursday, and I was by him about the half hour. He did whatever he had to do, and he tells me that the person is not Ben Achayim anymore, <coughs> but when they'll find him, the <coughs> police are going to identify him, they are going to be able to recognize him and come to the family based on his clothing, and you'll be able to identify him based on some uh, body marks that he has that the family will be familiar with. And when I came back to the States, I notified the family I was it. A few weeks later, the 
<coughs> police found a body that floated up <coughs> in one of the rivers and they saw that the, the long john, the underwear, was a chassidish type of underwear <coughs> that it was with long, long johns, etc. They contact the chassidish community, are you missing anybody? Because basically the head was separated, they didn't find the head, they only found the rest of the body. So um, the family basically decided to check the body and they found the simonim that there was on there they were able to identify and I believe they were able to be Mater Daguna to be able to remarry after that. <coughs> I used to send out cautious um, letters, now I don't do it anymore uh, because a lot of people changed addresses etc etc and I was not able to keep up with all the changes etc and things came back people didn't, notif- didn't notify me of the new addresses etc so I stopped doing the cashless but in the time that I did it uh, I uh, met one time with a five of was one of them that got it many many Rabbanim and others got it uh, the list was a nice couple of hundred people so uh, the five of meets me at a chasana and he tells me this thing that you wrote about and not dumping into the garbage hot or into the sink hot um, dairy or fleshics because of a shayla of Basabakhalov, where did you get that from? I said Abikivega. I say he says if you got it from Abikivega, why isn't that good enough for you? Why do you write others refrain from spilling hot milk or meat into the garbage? or into the sink because of this chashash. The Bekiveige is not reliable enough that you can write that the thing is also to do. I said, yeah, because I find a lot of people complain on a number of things, the way I write it, what I write it, and I hold it saucer, etc., etc. Et he said, let me tell you something. He says, from all the things that I've read by you, you have the information a lot better and a lot clearer than, than most other people. They don't know what the Matthias is. You're basing it on Salah Halach and everything. Forget what people have to say. Forget their comments. They're not interested in any of these kind of things. Whatever somebody writes that's good or whatever else it is, each one has his his uh, Torah to say. Just don't be good as them. Do what you have to do and show them all you strong. Don't be afraid of any of these people. Years ago, the, 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 used to, the USDA used to have that they branded um, uh, tongues and livers with a hot, uh, or at least tongues, with a hot branding iron with the USDA stamp. And I felt that it's a, it's a Shiloh because it's not, it's not um, kosher yet, and basically it becomes very hot, and that part you can't kosher, you really have to cut away uh, the etzba or whatever else is, but the part has to be cut away. So I asked the five colon and he told me I'm right. You have to t- cut that away, and you should do s- try to do something about it. So I handled with some of the um, uh, glut kosher purveyors, and then I handled with the USDA. Finally, we were able to get that they should do it just with ink, without uh, a hot branding iron, just with ink, just like they do it on the liver and on other parts of the body, and not use a hot iron on the thing. In other places. You know, you you cut away a piece of the meat, especially by liver. You take it off anyways, the chaylev and other things. So a little bit more you're cutting away because of this branding is nishkeferel. But when you take a tongue, which is the most expensive cut of meat, and you put a hot branding iron, then they have to cut a hole in the thing over here, you really damage the whole tongue. <coughs>